evening, everybody. And good morning and good afternoon to our colleagues around the world who are joining us online. The last couple of years have been periods of great change, with our new corporate leadership and also new key staff in many of our units. You've all got online access to our annual results, and we know how great they've been. We've achieved many of our targets, and we're continuing to increase sales and market share. That's been through a number of acquisitions, and also from shifting many of our subsidiaries to new divisional management lines. So, to hear straight from the horse's mouth from our chief executive, for this month's monthly update, Mr. Sheldon will update us. So, as we have seen, our results speak for themselves. And as your CEO, I wish you all the very best in continuing to achieve great results for our company, our customers, and the public. Our heritage is peerless, and we should all feel very proud. The foundation of our past success and future growth is formed by our core values. They must always drive our decisions and they must never be sacrificed in the pursuit of business objectives. They are central to our business model and our ethics code is more than something that tells us what to do. It is a statement of our living heritage that tells us who we are and we live our values. So, Joe, what's the story? Well, here's the data. As you know, the medicine doesn't dissolve properly. This batch includes one million units, and Max blocked the distribution according to procedures. I've run the numbers, um, and you can see the costs of destroying this batch, uh, the costs of late shipping, and the new production. We'll be out by a few weeks, but at least there won't be any risk to the wider business. It's pretty clear cut. The costs can be written off. We're lucky to have caught it before it was shipped. Thanks. That's um, very uh, comprehensive. Um, how long have you been with us now, Joe? Seven, eight years? About that, yeah. So, you know that we have a new strategy now, as a, as a new team, we, uh, we have a new focus on our commercial success, stock price. You, you're on board with it, right? Of course I am. I know we're a subsidiary, but as the old group CEO always said, we're going to conduct business the right way, or we exit. I know things have changed a bit recently. Well, to be frank with you, weakened in our quality process to speed things up. But you know the stance from corporate headquarters. I mean, it was only just today that we had Sheldon on his webcast reiterate the importance of our values right across the group, the importance of living them and how that helps us succeed. Yes, success. We need to succeed. Yes, yes, yes. I'm sure Sheldon feels that these values are very important. They're nice, nice values. But I bet you what's more on his mind are the overall numbers. The market analyst has been watching us having such a successful year. We have to continue to deliver. 
We need to deliver sales. That's what's keeping my boss awake at night. Finance must get that. Remind me, were you the one who ran the, uh, the costs on our quality control a couple of years back? Yeah, just after you joined the group. Right, so you know what quality does to margin. And you know the reason why we uh, change our staffing when it comes to quality audit frequently. And I don't have to remind you the financial benefits of using contract workers. It's a tough market out there, Joe. We need to fly high, so let's just agree to do what we need to do. But Al, we have to understand- I think we're done here, Joe. I would like you to arrange with the testing guys to retest the batch. Let's see what the numbers look like the second time round. They should be better. In fact, they will be better. I will uh, wait for you good news. Side effects. 
And what usually happens, the truth is out. And that's what happened. It came out. How the company first addressed it when it became leaked that this could be found out, they did something even more stupid. They did a stealth recall. They paid a third party to go into shops to buy the product back. <laughs> so at the time the charges were taken against the company, and this was the US headquarters, you know, this was thrown at them as part of criminal charges of actual deceit and crime. <coughs> so beyond that, they then went into a full-blown crisis of quality control. And the manufacturing plants where many of those drugs were made were impounded by the Food and Drug Agency, by the FDA in the States. The costs of the company not, were over $600 million. But beyond that, the reputational costs, the engagement costs, were incalculable during that period and it had a big knock-on effect on the share price. There was even boycott calls for in the Chinese press around the quality of this product. Now what is extraordinary of this case is this is a group that is renowned for high ethical standards and any of the research around the group, it will back that up. Most of the plants, most of the organisation, most of the operations do operate to those values that Sheldon spoke to. They were believed in. People who have joined the group furthered their career on the back of those values but there were changes in pockets around the company and changes in influence there. And that's the thing, if you're operating with, I think the company had 250 different businesses across 60 markets. It's not an easy task for a chief set, but that's why culture becomes absolutely critical. So we can make comparisons to many other scandals that have come to light. It could be all good intention by the management. Plenty of good stuff. But when you've got bad seeds and that gets hidden, you've got real issues and that's how do you really drive good culture through. So we can compare those quality issues to issues in the city, the kind of releases that are coming out month after month, the next bad story. So, you know, we could easily be talking about toxic debt, money laundering, libel fixing, and those pressures are coming from inside for people to succeed at all costs. Yet, going back to the short term, long term, they're not thinking what those costs are. And those costs for the short-term success can bring you down. So that is the culture question. Too much concentration on just the bottom line, without thinking of the wide good, the common good, and the longer-term consequences. And that's where our discussion turns to now. And I'd like to hand over to our chair, James. But first, I'd like to thank our performers for taking us. Yes, indeed, you might have thought you'd come to church, but you had come to the theatre, and that was a good uh, way to kick off this discussion, uh, which I'd like to welcome you to as part of the St Paul's Institute series looking into common good in the city and the contribution that culture makes within organisations towards forming people who are good uh, and behave in a good way. My name's James Walters. I'm chaplain at the London School of Economics. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm very pleased to see so many of you here and not at home watching a rather shoddy edition of Panorama. <laughs> but this isn't about good journalism this evening. This is about good people in the city. I'm going to introduce in a moment three contributors um, who are going to bring their expertise to the um, 
uh, discussion that we're having tonight, and we'll have an opportunity to to have discussion and questions to them afterwards. But we're very keen to keep you working this evening, and so um, for the next um, few minutes, we're going to explore another two scenarios, which again, I'm going to ask you to discuss with your neighbour, and then we're going to vote on uh, in some ways. Scenario one, conflicts between personal and corporate ethics. Even after the implementation of recommendations from a cultural review focused on ethical behaviour in your company, you still feel there are some areas of your work that are in conflict with the way you personally view ethics. How do you approach this conflict? A. Live quietly with the conflict because you believe there is always going to be a gap between personal and professional ethics. B. Discuss the conflict with work colleagues, highlighting your discontent and promoting the idea that more be done in the area of concern to you. C. Discuss externally your reservations in an attempt to force a build-up of external pressure and scrutiny. D. Decide that you should not work professionally for an organisation that has any obvious conflict with your personal standards of ethics, handing in your notice. Or E. Take your case directly to senior management, volunteering to do additional work on the policies of concern in an attempt to overcome the conflict you are feeling. Just going to give you a minute to discuss those options again with the person next to you who you're really getting to know this evening. Just to, uh, just to point out that the camera is on me at the moment, it's not on you, so when you put your hand up you needn't feel ashamed if you go for what you think might be not the, uh, the most ethical option. Please vote honestly. Um, who would uh, adopt A? The quiet life option, be honest. Well, oh, well done, one person. B, discussing the conflict with work colleagues. I think probably I expected that to be the majority one. Looks like a lot of hands there. C, discuss externally your reservations in an attempt to build up external pressure. A tentative hand there. D, decide that you shouldn't work, the, 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 uh, the ultimate option, hand in your notice. Yeah. Five, six, seven, eight. E, take your case directly to senior management and volunteering to do a bit of work in this area. How might that be received, I wonder? Okay, again, quite a, quite a, quite a contribution in that area. The second scenario about creating an ethical corporate culture. Creating an ethical culture is not a straightforward process and requires many different approaches to come together into one cohesive vision. Having said this, which of the following do you feel is most important in the development of an ethical culture? You probably think they're all a bit important, but which would you prioritise? A. Clear and well-established codes of conduct. B. Training sessions and employee engagement on ethical issues. C. Incentive structures that reward ethical decision-making. D. Behaviour of and inspiration from senior management. E. Easily accessible channels and actions to voice concerns, facilitation of whistleblowing. F. Rigorous internal auditing and compliance reviews. Again, I'm just going to give you a minute to discuss that with the person next to you. Okay, I think it uh, sounds like some decisions made there about the creation of ethical corporate culture. Who would 
votes with A, clear and well-established codes of conduct. A smattering of hands there. B, training sessions and employee engagement on ethical issues. Well, you're all here, so you must think training's important to some degree. A few hands there. C, incentive structures that reward ethical decision-making. Interesting, just a couple of hands there. D, behaviour of and inspiration from senior management. Very popular one there. E, easily accessible channels and actions to facilitate whistleblowing. Quite important. And F, rigorous internal auditing and compliance reviews. Nobody. Sounds quite dull. <laughs> okay. Well, that's really to um, raise all of these issues with you, to get you thinking about uh, what we're discussing this evening. And I'm now going to introduce, in turn, three um, speakers who have some uh, uh, expertise in these areas. Uh, and I'd like to... I'm not going to read out their full biographies because they're in the, uh, they're in the, the booklet for you. Um, but we're going to kick off with Peter Cheese, who is the Chief Executive of the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development. Thank you, James, and uh, good evening. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here in um, this auspicious surroundings for discussion on ethics uh, and good corporate practice. But uh, I think as we've already seen and as, as the conversation has already illustrated, this is a really, really important business agenda item. You know, we do live in a time when trust in business has never been more damaged. Um, it began with the global financial crisis, yes, so we can talk about the banks and the problems of the banks, but actually it's very extensive. It's the media, it's politics, it's sport, it's um, yeah, health service, it's all sorts of things going on where if you now ask young people in particular, but actually I think you ask people in the general population, they will point to the fact that they do not believe that business leaders ultimately are acting on ethical grounds. You know, first and foremost, they will believe that business leaders act according to financial gain versus ethical understanding. Now, it's not to say that those two things are mutually exclusive, of course, but there is a real, and, and if you're familiar with things like the Edelman Trust Barometer, you can see that corporate trust, sorry, trust in corporations, trust in business, trust in business leaders has clearly been declining. Um, at the same time, when we talk about these things, how do we create a corporate culture that engages this idea of ethics? Um, then what is corporate culture? How do we define that? And I think I certainly believe that you start by defining things like corporate purpose and corporate values. Um, and it's intriguing to me if you take the example now of Anthony Jenkins, the chief executive of Barclays. The first thing he said when he came into his role was we have got to revisit the purpose of the bank. Because if you ask most people what was the purpose of any of the banks in the last 10, 20 years, I don't think they would naturally leap to the conclusion that it was about oiling the wheels of commerce and looking after your or my money. It would seem to be more a purpose of enriching either themselves or their shareholders, and probably in that order. So, so Jenkins stood out, and, and I'm not saying all banks were behaving badly, but unfortunately it was too much of a trend, and said, you know, we've got to revisit the purpose of the bank. We've got to start with that. What is the purpose of the bank? And secondly, we've got to revisit our values, because if you go check the values, and I have done that, of most of the banks, and indeed many other institutions, you will read words like integrity. Now, I've always been slightly struggled with the notion of having to call out integrity as a corporate value, because it seems to imply 
well, what if I don't have that? I mean, do I behave with no integrity? I mean, is there not a baseline under which we all behave normally? But the, the, the point to be made is to say that you define, I think, corporate culture first and foremost with that notion of purpose and then that notion of values. But you have to then be able to take that understanding of values down through the organization so that everybody understands what we mean. And if we're using words like, and we do throw these words around a lot, like ethic, ethical behavior or, or integrity, then we have to define what we mean. Because in all honesty, there is not an absolute in the definition of these things. There is an absolute in terms of legal definition, but there is not an absolute in terms of what is good corporate culture and good behavior. So we have to define these things and then make sure that they are understood, that if I went four or five or six levels down in the organization and I asked people what the corporate values were, they would be able to tell me. Secondly, they would be able to tell me how they themselves are measured on those values and that they can see, as this question just showed here, that their top leaders or their managers and all the way up through the structure were living according to those values, demonstrably living according to those values. And to me, these, as I said, are issues of good business. There is absolutely no question that in an environment where you want to create sustainable business, sustainable reputation, that you have got consumers that are going to keep coming back to you because consumers are asking these questions more and more, then you have to create this notion of, of clear standards and clear ethics and clear behavior. But it does you know, then point to this challenge of, of how do we measure this? How do we know? And if I go back to Anthony Jenkins, this has got to be the core question for many businesses today, who are now professing that they want to turn the corner, they want to rebuild the corporate culture. And corporate culture takes a lot of time. It is not something you just say, right, I put in place a training program and I'm done. It takes all of those things, for sure. And it takes typically a number of years to truly change a corporate culture. But I think we have to figure out how would we know? So if, if I, as I say, go back to the Anthony Jenkins question. You know, some smart journalist from, I think it was The Standard, picked up the memo that he'd sent to his entire organization saying, we're going to revisit the purpose, we're, we're going to revisit the values. And this enterprising journalist went to one of the city watering holes and found a bunch of Barclays traders and asked them, what do you think? Well, you can imagine the response. Yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah, whatever. We're going to, you know, the day that, that he has to compromise something because we're not delivering the right numbers to the bottom line will be the day that I'll believe that this is serious. So I think that's a very core cool question. It's a certainly a core cool question that we in the HR profession, because I think the HR profession has a huge amount to, to say on this and should have a huge amount to say on this, because understanding corporate values, corporate behaviors, corporate cultures, leadership development, training, performance measurement, reward systems are all things which HR should worry about. But we as a profession, and I think it's an absolutely joined up agenda with the finance profession, which is why I'm very excited about the work that we are doing more and more with SEMA. It is a joined up agenda to figure out what are some of the measures that we need to apply so that we can apply them first and foremost at the highest level. And it begins with what questions should I be asking of this enterprise? If I'm a board director, or if I'm a stakeholder in some way, or even if I'm a consumer or an employee, what are the questions I should be asking that would provide the reassurance that we are building the kind of sustainable corporate culture that we need in the future? And if I'm asking those questions, then the next thing I'm going to be asking is, and show me the evidence. What are the metrics? And of course, corporate culture is not a single thing that you can measure. You need a combination of things, often which may be proxies as to how do we understand and measure that the dial is moving, that we are changing the corporate culture. And we've got to build the mechanisms around things like employee voice, 
which allow us to have our finger on the pulse of what is really happening in the organisation, because what's really happening in the organisation is best understood by the people at the front line. And we've got to give them that opportunity to have an employee voice. We've got to make sure that we move beyond suppression, and I worry that in, in too many environments we have suppressed employee voice in the, in the name of you know, the collective interest, if you will. And we can't allow that to continue to happen. And I think we all have a role in that, whether we're in HR or in finance, um, or indeed, you know, we're having discussions with the, with the trades unions, with the TUC about this. You know, if you think about the role of, of uh, the modern role of uh, a trade union, it should be to represent, amongst other things, the voice of the employee. So we're going to create those channels and mechanisms as well. But as I said, and I'll leave it on this thought, I really do believe that you know, those are all really important things. They do begin with uh, the behaviour of senior management because corporate culture always starts from the top. But I think we have a collective interest between our professions of HR and finance, and much more broadly, but I think we are two professions that have perhaps the closest, hopefully, understanding of this, is we've got to build the measures so that we can really keep challenging senior management. And senior management, or stakeholders in the business, including the board, will know when we are doing these things right and when we're not. So let me leave you with that, and I'll hand back to James, because I know we've only got a, a few minutes each. Thank you. Thank you for that, Peter. Now I'd like to invite um, Keith Luck to come to the podium, who is the Vice President of the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants, with whom the St Paul's Institute is partnering on this event this evening. Keith. Thank you very much, James, and thank you, Peter. Um, so in my day job, um, it's an honorary role being Vice President of uh, the Institute, in my day job I'm actually leading a bid with a consortia uh, to run a significant-sized organisation, several thousand employees, seven, uh, several billion pounds of spend, and in that, in our proposal, we're saying that we want that organisation to be safe, secure, ethical and compliant. So actually I've been thinking about what all of those terms mean and uh, a chance here to think about ethics. So as we've heard from Peter, why are ethics uh, so important? Well, the financial crisis of 2008 made it abundantly clear, as we've said, that ethical business practice uh, does not work, uh, unethical business practice does not work in the long term. So if our business, our organisation that we take over and run is to be sustainable, we've got to have ethics at the heart of that. Uh, the last few years have highlighted uh, the costs of acting unethically, and we've talked tonight about the spate of business failures, public distrust, increasing public protest, uh, whether it's about corporate or government misdemeanours, and a transparency agenda, of course, uh, across many governments. And Occupy, of course, outside this uh, very building, uh, played out some of that debate uh, a few months ago, just metres away. So businesses that uh, want to succeed in the longer term have to consider the challenges of ethics in their own operations and then take action to ensure that's the case. Uh, the rise of research activity in the field of business ethics and sustainability has been significant, with the growing influence of investors, consumers, employees and wider society uh, we're all pointing to the necessity of embedding wider ethical considerations into both strategy and performance measures, as we've just heard. Um, the banking crisis is just one aspect of that, whether it was Lehman's, HBOS, Barclays, RBS, UBS, the list goes on. Um, they show that regulation alone, the top of that list, does not stand in the way of bad behaviour. And bad behaviour 
um, seems to result simply in, probably the last of that list, uh, simply more regulations, more cost, more overhead. So by applying a values-based approach, leading by example, rather than relying only on written policies, rules and organisations are much better placed to promote a culture that encourages employees to internalise principles of integrity and to do the right thing. So ethics are the issue that fall into that grey zone between what's legal and what's not. Not only can unethical behaviour cause a business to lose its reputation and trust, which have long-lasting effects on that business, it can cost people, as we've heard and seen, their jobs and livelihoods. Critically, it puts employees under pressure to act against their own inner moral compass. And from Seema's experience, we know how deeply uh, individuals can be affected and how personal some of these issues are. Um, Seema has been exploring, through research and dialogues and policy engagement, issues of ethical culture. And indeed, Tanya Barman, who uh, opened this evening, is our Head of Ethics. And you can see the sort of work that, as an institute, we're doing and promoting in this area. And indeed, our CGMA re launch report last year focused on the value of the human dimension, confirming that relationships with customers, employees, partners and communities are all key for successful, long-term, sustainable business. SEMA has also been highlighting the need for accounting for ethics, an interesting idea in itself, be this in relation to risk, wider sustainability gains or whatever. Uh, this is evidenced again in our engagement and promotion of integrated reporting. Now that's the need to show the full value of companies across a range of operating capitals, including the human, social and environmental spheres. That's not always evident in the reporting that we see, uh, particularly on a quarterly basis and published balance sheets. And indeed, SEMA itself will lead the way this year by publishing in the new integrating reporting format. And I can tell you that the uh, pages on the people section in our integrated report make really quite interesting reading. So SEMA recognises the role in particular that management accountants have in this agenda. Uh, firstly, as you've heard, SEMA expects all management accountants to operate to an ethical code. And secondly, uh, we have the skills for both financial and indeed the non-financial reporting that we've just heard about and the analysis uh, skills needed to steer the business in the right direction. So our members and students all have this duty to observe high standards of conduct and integrity and you've seen the five principles printed on the code in a little booklet of your programme and they are integrity, objectivity, professional competence, confidentiality and professional behaviour. Now these points were not just dreamt up by us in SEMA but indeed they're shared by the accounting bodies globally. Uh, these are drawn from the International Federation of Accountants Global Code, so they now have worldwide currency. And I'm sure you will agree that these principles would indeed apply in spirit to anybody working in the public or business sector, whether they're of professional standing or not. However, a survey conducted by the CAS Business School when reviewing values in the city found that those who are members of professional bodies tend to feel more engaged in handling ethical issues. No doubt that's something to do with their training. SEMA emphasises that good ethical behaviour may be uh, required above the law, but in highly complex uh, business world, 
this isn't always an easy thing to achieve. And last year, SEMA, with um, our American cousins, the AICPA, the American Institute of Certified Professional Accountants, released our findings, again from a CGMA global service uh, survey, on responsible business. From what we found, um, four out of five businesses worldwide have committed to ethical performance, the sort of things on the top of this list. That sounds great, but the rhetoric, the rhetoric rather, doesn't match reality. Whilst it was positive to find that 80% of organisations provide a code of ethics to guide their employees about ethical standards in their work, that was up from 72% in 2008, we also found that there was a weakening of the tone from the top, with less senior management, less boards appearing to review and actually analyse ethical inf information, despite their very public statements. And worryingly, more than a third of those management accountants surveyed, in fact 35%, said they sometimes or always felt pressured to compromise their organisation's standards of ethical behaviour. This pressure is most pronounced in the developing and emerging economies. In fact, SEMA is a global organisation. Yes, it's lowest in the UK and the US, where only probably some 18% of those surveyed uh, felt pressure. And yet, in those economies, the US and the UK, that's sti still nearly one in five of our members. When questioned further on the action that they would take, similar to the questions we just had this evening, nearly 70% would escalate their concerns further. Again, that's good news. However, of concern was those who didn't. What about the 30% who would take no action? And why was that? Uh, largely through fear, perhaps of retribution from colleagues and others, or an apathy that in fact no action would be taken. And indeed, most worryingly of all, that sense of apathy that no action would be taken if they raised concerns was highest amongst the survey in the UK. So we have no reason to be complacent. And indeed, we've heard uh, from Peter that this is backed up for, by CIPD's findings, where 40% of employees felt that workers whose behaviour consistently goes against the values of organisations they work for are in fact often left unpunished or even rewarded, or worse still, promoted. This certainly needs addressing. And for a body like SEMA, we are very aware of the dilemmas that our members faced, or face. You heard from Tanya how, uh, in fact, we have an ethics uh, hotline, and in fact, on that, we fielded over 500 calls in recent years. And they're usually issues around senior management. And for senior management, often issues around uh, their boards. Those senior managers and boards pushing our members and students, in fact, to do something wrong. And these types of situation are mirrored exactly in the scenario that we've just viewed. So I can't emphasise how hard it is for individuals to, to deal with some of these basic issues. And indeed, I'm sure many of us in this room have personally had to wrestle with, at times, how to do the right thing and stand up against wrong. And it's a hard choice to... Uh, actually take one of these actions, do the right thing, uh, and perhaps leave the organisation. But that may be a question of balancing short-term uh, career against losing one's entire career when the truth would be out and you are found to be complicit in misconduct. Sometimes it is impossible to find resolution and standing up may cost individuals their job. 
uh, the classic case of Olympus. It wasn't just Michael Woodford um, that struggles uh, to find another role after blowing the whistle. And indeed, financial settlements, very common in the news, particularly in the public sector, only last for so long when people take that drastic action. That's got to be wrong. Why would we not want to champion good people more? At least in the UK, we have some legal redress. In other markets, again, our SEMA members may not have the same safety nets that we have here. Employment law, Public Interest Disclosure Act, and indeed, in many parts of the world, having huge financial responsibility to support extended families with no other financial support. So for the most part, we recognise that the greatest risk is in fact the risk within, and conflicts such as these are flagged up in the SEMA code. It talks about safeguards being needed, actions and other measures to eliminate threats or reduce them to an acceptable and manageable level. And that's why the culture in the work environment is so critical to enable professionals to do their best, strengthen the company's long-term financial performance. I used to sit on the Public Accountants uh, Business Committee of IFAC and we recognised the importance of ethical leadership and strategy. We highlighted the importance of the professional accountant in business and it was their mindset and how they need to embrace their professionalism and uh, display ethical behaviour. Professional judgement and investor and stakeholder focus. But it needs to be underpinned by strong organisational and environmental awareness as well as the ability to manage change, uncertainty and complexity. All this is obviously demanding for professionals and they do need support from above. It's not just, as we've heard here, tone from senior manager, getting the tone from the top right. It's also, in my experience, what one's immediate line manager says and does. So I was particularly taken by the case study. And indeed, talking to uh, colleagues about this speech, uh, I talked to somebody who recently worked uh, for a bank, again around the ethical standards and uh, compliance, and he said, yes, that's all very well, but go onto a trading floor and you'll hear something very different. So interesting, uh, I won't mention the bank. So um, uh, I, I suppose I, I should leave you really with um, some words and thoughts around SEMA's origins. And our first president nearly 100 years ago, uh, our founder, in fact, was Lord Leverhulme, an industrialist, philanthropist and politician. Um, now, in 2010, A.N. Wilson was quoted in the press as remarking that the altruism of Leverhulme, of the Cadbury family, are in sad contrast to the antisocial attitude of modern business magnates who think only of profit and of the shareholder. From Seema's ongoing work with a number of businesses and the interests of our members globally, there is hope for change. I'll leave you with a quote from Paul Polman, the CEO, Chief Executive of Unilever, in fact the global giant firm that uh, Lord Leverhulme went on to create. Uh, Polman said that businesses have to change to get off the treadmill of quarterly reporting and operate for the longer term. They have to recognise the needs of citizens and communities, that they carry the same weight as the demands of investors and shareholders. So SEMA believes strongly in the long-term sustainability of businesses and we recognise that requires great people operating in responsible environments to support them. So back to my story of um, uh, leading a safe, secure, ethical and compliant organisation. We have a practice of having safety and security moment 
before every major um, meeting uh, at some point in the course of the day. Uh, so my proposal is that I will also introduce an ethics and compliant moment where people will reflect on or talk about ethics and compliant, not just uh, compliance, not just safety and security. Uh, and I urge, therefore, that likewise, that you also find some way of making your mark on this particular debate. Thank you. Thanks, Keith. And finally, it's a pleasure to introduce a priest who, like me, works outside the walls of the church. Um, Fiona Stewart-Darling is the Bishop of London's chaplain in Docklands. Welcome, Hi, thank you. I um, don't quite know where to start, really. Um, I'm fascinated hearing um, both my other colleagues on the panel. And one of the things that strikes me, when we look at the triangle of what corporate governance is about. We talk at corporate values. We talk about professional values. I want to pick up on personal values. Because actually, when we come into work, we don't leave ourselves outside. There's a lot of talk around changing culture, and I work in Canary Wharf, and quite often I go into Barclays, and I see these massive big hoardings with their ethical um, values stated. Um, emails I get from many of the companies around Canary Wharf have their ethical values stated um, often at the bottom of their email and after their email address. One of the interesting things according to the Institute of Business Ethics, um, apart from integrity being the most overused word by most companies, one of the words that's starting to creep into companies' corporate values is the word courage. And in fact, one company has overarching its ethical values is courageous integrity. Which takes me on into my other thing and thinking about actually, what is it about personal responsibility? We can have all the codes and conducts in the world. We can have all the compliance in the world. The problem with rules and regulations, clever people work out how to get around them. And that isn't going to solve any problem. What solves the problem is when actually there is shared ownership, that people in companies recognise that they are not just a cog, they're an important part of that company, and the way they behave makes a huge difference. We are all shaped. We have a conscience. Some of us may have a sharper conscience than others. Many people have a belief system. And if they don't have a belief system, they certainly have some other kind of system which shapes their values and who they are. We all have some kind of experience from our background, from our education, from what we learn in our families. For many of us, there is a real sense of fairness. You watch two children playing. There's a real sense of fair fairness about whether it's their go or not. And actually, as we grow up, there is that sense of fairness. The trouble is, it's often out of balance. I was um, talking to someone at lunchtime today and uh, remarking on the fact that one of the problems that companies face is they are trying to change and transform human beings within them. The human condition. The problem is, 
the raw material in some instances is quite low. When people walk out of some of the big shiny towers, their behaviour is not the kind of behaviour you would expect. I will give you some instances. They're petty, but I will give, you, give them to you anyway. I'm fascinated when people stand at bus stops these days. You watch somebody arrives. Somebody else arrives. The bus comes along. You can't guarantee that the first person at the bus stop actually gets on the bus because everybody's sharpened elbows come out. I watch people no longer opening doors for one another. Um, my favourite one, and this is very sexist because that's my observation, particularly young women, as soon as they get in a lift in a corporate building, the first button they press after the floor is the close button, irrespective whoever else is waiting to get in the lift. We are in a hurry. We're in a hurry to get everywhere. In our hurriedness, we forget who we are and our responsibility to those around us. In most faiths around the world, there is a golden rule, and the golden rule is do unto others as you would be done by. And yet so often, that goes out of the window, and we behave in a totally different way. And I think one of the challenges facing companies is, yes, how do we embed those corporate values, top, middle, bottom of the organisation, right the way through? And as has been said before, you can have great values at the top, but they're only as good as the manager who's delivering them. How do we help people to take personal responsibility? And I think there's an issue around personal responsibility versus regulation and rules. And finally, how do we go about improving people's normal behaviour? We actually, in our Western culture, we live in a very selfish culture. There is nothing wrong with wealth. The issue around wealth is, wealth is a gift. And how do we use it? The more we have, the bigger responsibility that we have. The talents that God's given us, the more we have, the bigger responsibility we have. And I'm going to stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Fiona. Some big challenges there. I'm just going to um, kick off this discussion on the panel by referring back to the event last um, Thursday on the cathedral floor, which this, uh, this seminar is in some way responding to, where Archbishop Vincent Nichols um, very much spoke about the theme which you started with, Peter, about purpose. And he talked about good people bound by good purpose, and that part of what we really need to recover since the financial crisis is what these organisations are there for, mm -hmm. what, what their core purpose is, what they're doing, how that is of social benefit. And I, I, I wonder if we might talk a little bit about sort of how that happens. This evening it struck me that professional organisations have a big role to play uh, in that. Uh, I wonder whether the history of certain financial institutions needs to be a little bit recovered as well, perhaps internally within, within the organisation. Um, but also perhaps challenging, it seems to me, 
what one does encounter quite a lot, the, the, of this, this idea that's become normalised, uh, that simply maximising shareholder values, simply pursuing profit, is enough social purpose. And I mean, there's a question about whether or not there is social purpose uh, in that. It seems to me it's brought a lot of social benefits. Um, but we're, we're starting to question whether that is enough and, um, and how one goes about challenging that in institutions that maybe don't have very much more social purpose than the generation of wealth. Does the city need to lose some institutions that actually don't contribute, don't, don't have enough purpose, I wonder? Mm-hmm. Is that something that... Yeah, I mean, maybe a couple of thoughts, James. Um, yes, um, I absolutely believe that a purpose that is just defined by shareholder value is clearly not a very engaging purpose. And that would be my first point, that... I don't know if you're familiar with um, a writer called Dan Pink, and he wrote a very good book called Drive, or The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. And it's based on an on a awful lot of gathering of, of psychological research over many decades that points to the things that truly motivate us. And the first thing he says is it's an alignment of purpose. Um, it, it is, I believe, this entity, this organization, this team that I'm working for has some purpose that I can relate to. And of course, there's the apocryphal story I'm sure many of you have heard of the, um, the cleaner at NASA. Hear this one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the presidential tour going around NASA, they come across a cleaner, and you know, whomever it was, JFK, says to the cleaner, So, uh, what do you do here? What's your job? And he said, My job is to help put a man on the moon. So a link from a you know, fairly menial task to, to much higher purpose and vision. And that's an incredibly engaging idea. And the idea that you can engage, particularly this younger generation, with the notion that the only thing that counts is shareholder value is obviously for the birth. Um, so I think it, it has many aspects, this notion of purpose. But if I just stick with that one thought, which is this, it is an engaging thing. So how you engage people, and then if you can define your purpose in the right way, not only do you engage them, but you can also, you know, perhaps to build on Fiona's thoughts, you can select the right people into the organization because you can't build a, a corporate culture which is right if you don't understand what are the values and what's the purpose that I espouse and therefore the kinds of filters that I want to put on the people that work here. Um, so that's why it is a, it's obviously, and I, I, I know, it's a, you know it's not something cubely, but it, the purpose is way, way beyond you know, this financial purpose of just creating shareholder return. So a couple of thoughts if I, I build on that. Um, as I said in my presentation, um, it's not just about the bottom line, which might be a surprising statement from an accountant uh, and a surprising one to make. Um, just being about uh, the bottom line is an out-of-date model. Now, we have fleshed that out. There's the concept of wider stakeholders, whether it's the employees, whether it's trade unions, or indeed wider society. Um, But our argument now is that we can go beyond that. That still has a focus on quarterly reporting, short-termism, as we saw in the uh, role-play scenario. Yes, it's what keeps my boss awake is the next quarterly results. I can't afford a glitch at this point. They've got to keep steadily going upwards. Um, So the idea of moving much more to integrated reporting that looks at the financials, looks at some of these other areas of performance, uh, looks at the human capital as well as the financial side, and looks at what really uh, underpinning integrated reporting is about, is what is this organisation really there for? Back to Peter's point about redefining the purpose of organisations. I think, yeah, that's interesting. One of the things that... um, often gets back press is corporate social responsibility. 
And there is a school of thought around that actually says um, that you remove the word social and actually corporate responsibility should be totally woven within the fabric of every part of an organisation so that every part of an organisation knows it has a responsibility and it is of social use, whatever that, that's defined as, but it has benefit upon the local national and international community because as we talk about financial um, companies, they're global. So it's not just what the impact they have on London or on the UK, it's the impact they have on the other countries in which they operate. And that also has um, great benefits, but also has massive challenges when other countries' sense of ethics or values is different from our own. And I wonder, this question about good people, perhaps picking up on some of the, the, the sort of more personal ethics things that you were talking about, Fiona, one of the things that strikes me about a corporate organisation, even some that I work for, where you talk about a good person, it's sometimes used in a different way than, say, you would talk about a good friend or a good mother. Um, in the, it, it comes into this collective context where it might take on the connotation of this is a reliable person, this is a team player, this is someone who's not going to rock the boat, um, this is someone who maybe won't challenge things that, you know, that might be challenged. And I wonder if there's a bit of a redefinition or a reappraisal of what we mean by good people uh, in, in, within organisations and whether that's happening. Well, I don't think you can divorce the idea of, of, of those notions. In other words, because um, you're right, the language of good person in corporate environments I've heard a lot, and actually when a senior director or manager says that, they mean they're one of the team, they play by the corporate rules and so forth. And, and, and it's, a, it's back to the same idea, to be a good person, to be a good employee. If that's your definition, if I'm the boss of a good person, then of course you're saying, yeah, that, but I need to have good values, so therefore that it's not an oxymoron to say that somebody operates by my my view of good person values is different from Fiona's broader concept of what a good person is. And we need to align those two things better, because I, I agree, historically, I think you could draw a line between those two things and say, a good person, by my definition, could be placed by my rules, but actually my rules aren't good or ethical, yeah. is not a good person. I mean, I think there's also an issue around um, helping people not to be schizophrenic. You know, I think a good person has to be someone who is integrated so that they're not split between their own um, personal values, their professional values, and what's expected of them in the workplace. I was talking, I must have been some time now, to somebody who is global head of risk of one company. We were talking about reliable and people that you would trust in the workplace. And his comment to me was, actually, would you trust someone with your grandmother's bank account? Because actually, when you start thinking about something which is much closer home and personal, that has much more an influence on looking after some old lady's bank account who happens to live in, I don't know, Dakar or somewhere. Um, and the problem that we've got with our big global organisations is this disconnectedness between sitting in front of a screen and a real person a long way away. And the thing is, when you've got someone sitting in front of you, often your behaviour is different because there's accountability. It's the whole thing that goes back to the banking of my word is my bond, which got lost with the big bang. Yeah. 
Um, and actually, that's one of the things that we need to recover so that people can be good people because they're integrated, but they're also thinking of that person in front of them, not somebody who's about 20 people along the line. It doesn't matter because they'll never catch up with them. And I suppose my thought around some of that is where people have in the past perhaps been expected to leave some of their own personality at the door and to comply and to conform. And we're increasingly seeing now a generation of younger people, Generation Y, who actually are not prepared to do that, not prepared in the same way as we may have done ourselves in the past, in our generation, to actually leave themselves at the door. They're looking for organisations that align with their own values, that truly have those values and allow them to flourish. So there's a recruitment and a retention, talent management issue around that as well. I hope those young people are coming from LSE. Yes. <laughs> uh, we've got a chance now to take some questions from the floor, and I just want to explain that the, the, the panel's being filmed here, but if you ask a question, you're going to be edited out uh, later, so don't, yeah. feel, don't feel inhibited from asking a question that you feel might sort of incriminate you in some way. Um, and there was a hand. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I think the CIPD's own research has shown that the highest reason for absenteeism is now stress. Um, we're obviously in the last few years been in an incredibly difficult environment where people may be frightened of doing anything that rocks the boat because they don't want to be exposed and the next one on the list to be, to be fired. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it, it seems to me that the issues around what, what created the global crisis and all these other things, was, was this an issue of people just doing what they were told, and we've got these large organizational structures, which I, I agree with your point, Fiona, that mm. there's a disassociation. You know, so what I might do with, to my granny or the, my next-door neighbor is not the same thing that I would do in a corporate environment, because there's this massive disassociation. It's just a computer screen. Um, or, as, as John Cape pointed out in his review, that, that there are so many intermediaries now between, you know, so the cause and effect is so hard to measure. So you can, you can disassociate yourself, therefore, from the impact. You can't even understand it. Uh, so you combine those thoughts that people are unwilling to stick their head up uh, because they don't want to lose their job. There's all this stress. There's this, this pressure to, to deliver results in the short term uh, and this disassociation in the larger organizations. Now, but I think there are some solutions to this. We're, we're doing some very interesting work at the moment with um, a guy called Gary Hamill, who you may have heard of, and, and he... Um, Gary, who was raised one of the world's foremost business thinkers, is an absolute advocate of the view that we've got to deconstruct large enterprises, that we've created complexity upon complexity, more and more process, more and more disassociation, therefore, between what my job is and anybody else's job, and certainly the impact on the consumer. Uh, and then we've got to rethink this thing. Um, and we've either got to break it down into smaller entities where we can understand that, and I think that has lots of other parallels to things we've already said, such as this, this idea that I'm going to be far more engaged if you give me some sense of control and don't treat me like you know, a cog in a wheel. And whatever we think we've done in creating, you know, to your point, empowered organisations, unfortunately most of the evidence is we have not because we have built more process, we've automated things like complex tasks with clever work scheduling systems that have done the precise opposite of empowerment. Um, and then you know, the last point in it, which is a point I also made in my opening remarks, is that to create a truly empowered structure, I mean, this is, this is about a trust issue that's got to work both ways. If business leaders have got to trust their employees more. And I think in an environment where there's so much pressure on business leaders, there's so much of the short-termism and all the rest of it, I would contend fundamentally that most business leaders, if you really ask them, 
Would you empower your employees, give them broader parameters to play with, to, to make their, you know, to align their own personal values to, to decision-making? Decision Most of them say, if I'm really honest, no. I'm not sure I trust them enough. I'm not sure they, I believe they know what they're doing, or whatever it is. Or you get these ridiculous statements that I've heard so many times from senior business leaders about, I could change this organization if it wasn't for the permafrost of the middle management. And I say, well, either you're telling me that you've recruited the wrong people, or you're telling me that you haven't explained what the hell is going on and how you truly empower these people. Because I simply do not believe that the average employee is some you know, person rigid and stuck in their ways and never wants to change or never has an opinion on the direction of this business. So I think there are a number of issues there at play. But uh, I think you know, that this is a very fundamental one of trust and it's got to be two-way. I wrote down smaller work groups, actually. The same sort of idea, I think you were saying the... Uh, a huge amorphous uh, organization, globalization, internationalization, you can get lost, an individual can get lost there. But actually it's got to be about the people that you work with. And I think as we saw in the case study, um, that organization had all the right things in place, but for some reason in that part of the organization, uh, something had gone wrong. And actually it's in that smaller team where the culture really does come to life. It comes back to my point, it's not just tone at the top, but it's about the immediate line manager and supervisor who really has the fundamental impact on individuals. Individuals leave organisations largely because of their immediate boss, not perhaps because of some other big scandal. They keep their head down at dinner parties and carry on. You know, but if they're not getting on with their boss or there's something else that they're in conflict with at that level, that's really, I think, the critical relationship. One's immediate line manager or supervisor above that. I think that's true. I think there's a huge challenge facing the financial industry at the moment because most organisations are downsizing um, in such a way as they really are streamlining their businesses. And there are a lot of people leaving the financial services who will have to find jobs in other sectors. So there's going to be a lot less movement between the financial services that we've seen over, over previous years. And that also could have some kind of knock-on effect of behaviour in the workplace as well. Um, so it's going to be much harder to walk away from a job because ethically you don't agree with it. But hopefully, and one can hope, as companies are working to change culture, that people within the culture in the companies also want to be in a company that actually has a good culture and they want to be part of that. It's about empowering people. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I, I agree with your observation. I mean, if you look at it certainly from a you know, publicly credit company's perspective, the shareholders have a massive impact on the decision-making of the executive team, right? and, and, uh, and they should. I mean, that should be the purpose of, of, of the system, if you will. But I think that there are lots of issues, one of which is who is the shareholder? I mean, the reality is, as we all know, the, 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 you know, the shareholder register turns over at unbelievable speed and 70% of all trades happen you know, within minutes. And so, so, but you are left, of course, with a, a group of large pension funds and large institutional shareholders who I think are beginning to get more active on this stuff. Now, now some of it is the obvious thing, like the fairness of top executive pay and, and about 
you know, about, I was about to use a, <laughs> a word I shouldn't use in this script, but about time too. Yeah? It, it, we, sh we, we should be using these sorts of checks and balances of, of shareholders to get more interventionist, if you will, on things like that. But that, that's a very kind of high-profile one, executive pay and remuneration. And, and frankly, they've had to wake up because of the Daily Mail or whatever it is, you know, public opinion, if you will, that's influencing it. But I think we could go further. I mean, as I said, to me, good corporate governance begins with what questions should I be asking? Uh, and I think we've had an absolute systemic failure whether it's shareholders or boards or executive teams, and asking the right questions. We've been asking questions about, what's my profit? I mean, mm -hmm. your, your point, Keith, yeah. earlier. Yeah. What's, my, what's my next quarterly results going to look like? And frankly, all our measurement mm -hmm. systems, P&L, balance sheets, are all historic looking. They're not talking about long-term sustainable value. But I think, as I said, the agenda's building, and, and so there is a role to be played by the share, the right shareholders, in influencing corporate thinking and corporate uh, decision-making. And you know, so certainly I know SEMA does it, and we're, mm. we're trying to work together yeah. on some of these things, yeah. is to engage with the investor community and the communities that work on behalf of shareholders to say, what are the questions you should be asking? If you're in this business for a long-term position, then you should be asking these questions because they do relate, as yeah. we all said. These are about long-term sustainable business performance issues. And, and absolutely, as Fiona said, people will join organizations that have good cultures, demonstrably good cultures. And if, if the battle about building sustainable businesses is about getting the right people and keeping them, then this has to be as critical as any other dimension of business performance. And as I said before, we've got to get the right measures. So at SEMA, we run a program about tomorrow's company. Mm. Um, and there is a whole debate which we're trying to build on the back of the issues that have occurred since 2008 about exactly what are our companies for, what's the purpose, where do they contribute, where are the failings, and to try and get much more forward-looking uh, organizations how can these be sustainable so when somebody like Unilever steps away from quarterly reporting and says we're not going to play that game anymore that's a very fundamental step and I think there is now uh, we're part of it here this evening a fundamental debate about what are our companies for what are these organizations for what's the social purpose as well as the financial or economic one do you think uh, Google's got a good social purpose you know what Google's mm. purpose is yeah, do, no do, evil. No harm. Yeah. do you think that's mm. a good one do you think they do evil? Do you think they are behaving ethically all the time? I think it's a very challenging thing because if you, if you take Google, I mean, you, I'm sure you would guess, but the amount of information they hold on us as individuals is truly staggering. And, and to, mm -hmm. to pick Unilever, I know the Chief Marketing Officer Unilever very well, and yeah, Unilever's working very tightly with, with Google, and you would not believe what they could tell you about us individually, where we live, how we spend our time, how many children we got, what our you know, generally our income is. I mean, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, and that does exactly. raise. Uh, that does exactly. raise We're a whole new paradigm of this stuff. Yeah. It does raise the, the regulation <coughs> question, doesn't mm. it? That actually, that's a lot of, as you say about Google, there seems mm. to be a whole area that's kind of going to be ripe for future government regulation or even as Fiona points out, at an international level to yeah. secure human rights simply you know, in these areas. Yes. And, um, but there's also something I think much more sinister about that um, in that they know how we spend our money. Yeah. And therefore they're attempting us to get our credit cards out and get ourselves even more into debt. Yeah. Which again was you know, part of the big issue around the global crunch is lots of money in Asia, lots of debt over here. So I mean there's a whole bigger issue not just about how we behave in companies, but something actually how we behave as individuals. Yeah. But uh, the consumer impact, I mean, I'll give you another for instance yeah. on this ethical dilemma. When, when Tesco's discovered that there was horse meat in their product, 
Where was the ethical problem? Where was the biggest ethical problem? And, and, the, and the point I'm making is that I know meat producers who supply Tesco's. Well, I can tell you, from their perspective, they have been forced by the likes of Tesco's to reduce their, pro their costs, their price they sell, sell to the region, to such a level it is virtually uneconomic. And so they're saying, well, I kind of had to do what I was forced to do. I, I did some product substitution. I didn't kill anybody, but product substitution is a classic cost reduction mm -hmm. strategy. Now, I'm not condoning meat producers you know, substituting because they're trace descriptions apart from anything else. But I think it's an interesting question because I honestly do believe that from a retailer's perspective, they have been driving some of these supply chains to a point where it's virtually uneconomic. Now, to, to your wider point, so what, are, what can we do about that as consumers? Yeah. I mean, if, if we understood some of these things and had more transparency to these things, then maybe we as consumers, which is ultimately the greatest sanction of all, yeah is we remove our trade, we don't go and work for these companies or whatever it is, but, but it just shows, I mean, whether it's Google or Tesco or whomever, that this debate about what is ethical and where is the source of that problem and how do you measure it and understand it is a really complex one and it's getting more complex because of technology and all these other things which, and the huge pressure, to, to your earlier point, on performing in, in a very, very much more difficult economic environment. It's, it's forcing all sorts of decisions, which on the face of it, in, in, in the first instance, looks okay, okay, so I've got a problem with my price, I put pressure on my, my supply chain. Well, how far do I take that for? That's unethical. Yeah. But one of the chief execs of one of the big suppliers actually went so far, or supermarkets went so far to say it was actually the consumer's fault, <laughs> didn't he? In that, that it was consumers wanting the low product at lower price right. and therefore they were... And, 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 but encouraged uh, by the retailer, much like a Google is encouraged. And, and, and it was that buck passing that yeah. I thought mm. was yeah. particularly yeah. distasteful. Yeah. Yeah. Should, we, um, should we take three questions uh, from the floor and then we can kind of sort of respond to you know, what's appropriate to, to each panel and if... Uh, so it's a, a lady there, and then here, and uh, what's it? Okay, so um, a question about clients. Very good uh, question there. What point um, people need to challenge the ethics of their clients? Very important question about the, the, the power of money and, and, and how we, we can't underestimate and trivialise that. Um, and, and a question about exams, training. Well, I guess on clients, one always has a choice. Um, and I'm thinking of a very good friend of mine who did work for an advertising agency a number of years back, and they did actually have a policy of not working for uh, tobacco companies or arms manufacturers. And you could say, well, that was a small advertising media company. It was actually quite a large organisation. So those sorts of, uh, I suppose, codes do exist. Um, there's always the argument that people then say, well, if we don't do it, somebody else will. So you're into that sort of uh, ethical debate. But we do have choices, and indeed, as individuals, we probably make those choices about the sorts of organisation uh, we work for or choose not to work for as well. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'd actually be interested in your thoughts mm. on that as a solicitor, but <coughs> I mean, a quick thought on that particular point, um, having worked for a large management consulting business. I mean, we, Accenture took its decisions about, for example, certain um, regions of the world that it wouldn't operate in. Mm. Um, so parts of the Middle East, for example, because you had to pay middlemen or whatever, and it just ethically believed that was wrong. But it certainly worked for tobacco companies and certainly worked for arms manufacturers, and then left, in many ways, the decision up to the right matter, the decision yeah. up to the employee, yeah, the individual. and said, 
we're working for British American Tobacco. They're a big company, they're a very successful commercial consumer products company. You may not agree with them personally selling tobacco product, but that's the reality of what it does, and it's serving a consumer need. Um, and if you don't like that, then you don't have to work there. Mm. As, as on that client project, so you, you, there are kind of shades of grey of all of yeah. this stuff. But but I'm interested, in, you know, as, as solicited, how do you approach it? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah. It's it's, it's a real it, yeah. a real tough one. I mean, uh, yes, if, if if it's kind of the norm and everybody does it. I mean, another mm. one of my favourite examples on these ethical dilemmas was the World Cup. So they had, you know, the Britain England in this context, <laughs> yeah, went into this classic thing. Oh, we're going to bid for the World Cup, and and then um, found that they didn't actually like the rules of the game and then got found out because actually everybody was playing by a different set of rules. We knew that mm. perfectly well, um, but we chose to sort of stand back from it all and moralise and say how terrible it was. Well, mm. I think in a context like that, you either play by those rules or, or you don't. You have to make a choice, but I, th- I don't think it's particularly helpful, whether you're a you know, corporate mm. client or whatever, saying, well, I kind of played by the rules, but then I didn't get the work because you, you played by a different set of rules, and then I'm going to stand and moralise at you. Because as I said, there is no absolute black and white on these issues. I mean, I think... There are shades of grey, and I think we have to define what's right for us personally, what's right for our corporation, what may then be things which we have to influence in the wider industry. But that's why these discussions are always so interesting. Yeah. There is not and difficult. No absolute, and difficult. And difficult. Fiona, you spoke about the about people's moral integrity and, and personal responsibility. Where I wonder if you want to comment perhaps on Bishop Peter's remark about um, about the power of money and the conflicts that that generates with people. Okay. I mean, one of the things that strikes me about the power of money is the danger is that we're measuring people's wealth by how, people's worth by how much money they've got and I think that's a very dangerous place to be in. And actually our you know, whether it's the financial industry or footballers or pop stars or whatever, the question has to be asked, should people be paid those kinds of sums of money anyway? You know, is someone worth two or three million pounds a year or whatever? I think it's a much bigger question, and the question has to be asked around what is the purpose of wealth? What is the purpose of money? Why do we have it? And then you get into much bigger philosophical questions. It means what does it mean to live? Uh, just an observation on that, because you're right, and, and I've had discussions of this nature. You know, Will Hutton has written a lot on fairness and this notion of societal fairness in terms of how can it be fair that a banker gets paid X and a, and a nurse gets paid you know, an absolute yeah. fraction of that and it's a terribly hard thing to sit in judgment of and, and you know, as, as Bishop Peter said he, you're absolutely right, if, if you look at the, the banking sector and, and unfortunately I don't think the heads of the four major banks right from the outset of this ever made this point which was crazy to me that if you look at the average pay across the banking sector it is no better or, and in many senses is lower than the average pay across many other sectors. So we have to get these discussions in proportion, which is that, yes, there is a segment of this, the banking sector which one can argue is vastly paid beyond their worth in a societal sense. Equally, footballers and media stars, whilst you see them all the time, and it was a Yaya Torres who signed some new deal to be paid 220000 a week or something nuts. You think, how on earth could that happen? But, of course, they are right on the very edge of any you know, normal discussion. The problem is, of course, they get massive visibility, and then we all start to extrapolate from that and say, so is that becoming the norm? Yeah. The other uh, thing I'd like to add to that, if I might, mm. one of the things is just because someone works in a bank, they're not necessarily a banker. Yeah. 
Uh, absolutely. Yes, so there's a huge population of people that got kind of, I'm very sadly tarred with this particular brush, and I don't think the yeah. sector helped itself by ever making that point clear, but it's certainly true. Okay. The, uh, the bell tolls for mm. us, but it doesn't toll for this question. conversation, yes. which is, um, yes, apologies to the exam question. Uh, the, the, um, this discussion doesn't end, though, so that can be resumed over drinks. Uh, where we'll carry this on. And I do hope that this is um, uh, a discussion that you're going to take back to your places of work and to your organisations uh, because it could hardly be of uh, more greater importance at the current time. Thank you to those who've organised this evening, uh, particularly the Institute and SEMA, and thank you especially to our panellists.